When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and this is a very, very special episode of Pod Dylan. We're not uh, following our traditional format where I have a guest on to talk about one particular Dylan song, and instead we're doing an interview with Joan Osborne, the Joan Osborne. I'm sure everyone who is listening to this is familiar with Miss Osborne's career dating back into the mid-90s. She has a new record out. The Songs of Bob Dylan, where she covers 13 Dylan tunes. Joan was kind enough to come on to the show and talk with me about the record, uh, the making of the record, the song she chose to sing, uh, her love of Bob Dylan's music, and of course even collaborating with the man himself on a cover of uh, Chimes of Freedom that they did together. It was truly an honor to speak to her. I've been a fan of hers ever since I first heard of her in the mid-90s, and uh, it's a it's a real special honor to be able to talk to her. So what we're going to do is I'm going to We're not going to have an outro uh, to this episode. I want to give Joan the final word. So, of course, you can follow uh, this show over on Twitter at pod underscore Dylan, and you can find all the back episodes of our show over on our network site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can get uh, the Songs of Bob Dylan album on Amazon or any other, or iTunes or any other places where you can get uh, records. I call them records still. Uh, I hope if you haven't gotten this album yet, I think you should. There are some Absolutely terrific cover versions here of some famous and not so famous Dylan songs. So once again, it was a huge honor to speak to Joan. It was just really a a big thrill. And I do have to send out a special thanks to uh, Pod Dylan executive producer David Ace Gutierrez, who helped me put this interview together. So uh, thanks, everyone. Please enjoy the interview and go out and buy the songs of Bob Dylan. Hey, Rob, how you doing? Hi, it's uh, wonderful to talk to you. It's uh, it's a real honor. I've been a, been a fan for a long time. Oh well, thank you very much. It's very nice of you. Well, thank you. Thank I you. Uh, I'm I'm not. <clears throat> I'm I've got to say right up front, I'm not the the world's biggest expert on Bob Dylan. So there's probably a lot that you know that I don't know. But um, <laughs> I'm willing to talk and. Uh, I'm game to give it a try. Well, that's great. It's it's not a quiz or anything. I'm, I'm not trying to uh, stop anyone. <laughs> so, uh, but I said this is this is a real thrill for me to get to talk to you just in general, and then the fact that you're going to be on the show is just a a real real tremendous honor. And I, I love the album. I thought the album was just terrific. Oh, thank you. All right, great. Well, uh, like I said, I saw in an interview that you did uh, previously that you mentioned that. Ella Fitzgerald's albums of covers was like one of the big inspirations for this project. Mm-hmm. And of course you've been covering Dylan songs on your records and on live before. So, but like what led for you to like tackle this project now? Well, it actually, um, it was a, an offer to do a residency at the cafe Carlisle in New York that really kind of uh, put this process in motion. Um, I had gone to see Buster Poindexter <laughs> um, because my partner Keith Cotton plays with him and, uh, you know, we went to the show and it was a great show and I loved the room and, of course, knew about the reputation of the Carlisle and, you know, as this sort of classic New York City glamorous cabaret spot. Um, so we had a great time. And the next morning we got a call from the, the Carlisle asking if, you know, if I would want to do 
a residency there, a two-week residency. Um, so on the one hand, I was excited because I loved the room. And on the other hand, I was like, well, I'm not really a cabaret singer. I don't know that I want to go in there and just do my regular show because it doesn't seem like it would re- be giving a nod to the history of the room. So mm. I want to do this, but I don't know what to do. Um, and that's when this you know, idea that I'd had in the back of my mind for a long time to do you know, a songbook series in the way that Ella Fitzgerald had done uh, it kind of, you know, I, I thought, well, maybe this is a, a perfect opportunity to test this idea out, to pick one writer and base the whole residency around their work and see if it, you know, see if it works out, see if we like it, see if the audience likes. Um, and so that was really sort of the, the impetus for doing it now. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. It makes sense. Uh, like out of the hundreds of songs to pick from, uh, li- literally hundreds of songs to pick from, I noticed three of the songs on your album are from Blood on the Tracks. Uh, can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. what that particular album means to you? Well, you know, I I didn't uh, start out to, you know, focus on Blood on the Tracks in particular. Uh, we had kind of a, a few different lenses that we were trying to, to look through in order to pare down the list of possible songs because as you say there's you know hundreds of great songs of Dylan to choose from so uh, you know the first task was you know which ones do we pick and how do we narrow that down um, so so the choices that I wanted to make um, were sort of informed by this desire to pick songs from throughout Dylan's career so you know not only early stuff from the 60s like you know Spanish Harlem incident but later stuff uh, like uh, things from 2001's Love and Theft, uh, stuff from the 80s, stuff from the 90s. You know, I, re- I wanted to, to uh, choose things from all throughout his career. Um, and then I also wanted to choose things that, um, some things that people would be familiar with in the way that they're familiar with, say, Highway 61 or, or Buckets of Rain, and then other things that were more obscure, um, like Dark Eyes or, again, Spanish Harlem Incident. So I, I really didn't, start out to focus on any particular uh, album in the way that, uh, you know, in the way that the Blood on the Tracks record seems to be, you know, sort of featured in the song selection. It really was just that as we were going through the material um, and picking out songs to work with in this kind of trial and error way when we were uh, rehearsing stuff for the Carlisle show, those songs just kind of, you know, we just sort of had ideas for them and we just kind of uh, you know, sort of selected and was like, oh, what about this tune? Oh, what about that tune? Um, and they just kind of kept rising to the top of the pile in the way, uh, in a way. And uh, and so we kind of went with it. Uh, you know, part of the process was uh, was instinctive in that way. Now you mentioned uh, Spanish Harlem Incident, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's my favorite track on the album uh that is my favorite one. Oh that, wow thank you yeah i mean the the dylan original is not one of my particular mm. favorites of his i love the lyrics but mm. i just I, i'm just not as big a fan of the sort of the way he plays it on that record but i love the kind of like mm-hmm. silky groove that your band gives it and you kind of have this great sort of sultry performance uh, it's i was i was like i actually like this better than the dylan original which is rare for me to <laughs> say uh but i wanted to like is there a difference in your mind between interpreting a song that so so few people know versus some of the more famous ones like you just mm-hmm. really talked about? Um, I mean, I, I I think that's part of 
the job of an interpreter is to, you know, whenever you can to try to bring something unique to to your reading of a song. Um, you know, obviously, if you're just going to copy what the original artist has already done, there doesn't seem much point in it. It's like, well, why wouldn't people just go back and listen to that version then? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so I felt like, you know, each song that we chose, we wanted to try to do something different with it. Now, you know, of course, you can go too far with that and you can do something crazy with it. And it, then it just seems like a stunt and it doesn't respect the material. But, you know, we wanted to make sure that even though we tried to bring something new to it, we, it, it was always about the song. What's going to serve the song best? And, you know, with Spanish Harlem Incident, I felt like there was, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a seduction song. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this celebration of this person that you, you know, that the the writer sees kind of on the street and, and has this sort of cool kind of, you know, a fantasy attraction to. And, um, and I thought that that was a very... Uh, like it was a celebratory uh, lyric and yet, you know, the Dylan version seems a little bit tossed off and it doesn't seem to really dive into that aspect, which is what impressed me about the lyrics. So that's what we were trying to do is to kind of do a version of it that has a little bit more of a joyful energy to it. And even, even to the, to the point of it becoming almost like a pop song. Yeah, absolutely. That's funny that you mentioned that you that you used the phrase "tossed off" because I mean that album that he that that appeared that it appears on another side of Bob Dylan was recorded all in one night. Mm-hmm. The whole album was done in one night with the and they went into it with that purpose. <laughs> well, there and, you go. And I have to wonder that you know if you, if you go into it with the notion of I'm going to do the entire album in one night, you probably you know kind of are willing to move past stuff that has some imperfections because you're just like well, mm-hmm. we got to get this done. So. <laughs> But yeah. I, yeah I think well, I think terrific. that's always been, you know, a, a, something that people talk about with regards to Dylan is that he didn't really care so much about, you know, what does this guitar sound like or what, you know, getting things completely perfect and pouring over it and, and being really fussy in the way that people make records, you know, nowadays or, or you know, did in the 90s and whenever. He it seemed like he's got the reputation of just I just want to get in there, get the lyrics out. That's what's important to me, you know, and just get a take and then let's move on. So, I mean, I, I've only been in the studio with him once, so I can't speak to, you know, knowing that much about, uh, you know, whether that reputation is deserved or not. But if you say that he did a whole record in one night, then, you know, of course you can't, you can't stop and go over things time after time. Cause you just, you won't be able to do it. Right. Yeah. Um, it's funny. You said this was something else I wanted to ask you about. I mean, because Dylan is famous for wanting to record live with his entire band at the same time. And in, he doesn't particularly worry about mm-hmm. any given take being perfect. There's a there's a song on one of his records where you can hear the, the button of his coat slapping him against the guitar. And apparently when the, the, uh, <laughs> engin- the engineer pointed that out to him, he went, too bad. And that was the end of that conversation. Can, can, you, can you talk a little bit about how this, how your album was recorded? Did you have the whole band with you all at the same time? Yeah, we tried to uh, kind of create a bit of a, um, like a space that was only for King Optic. And um, we went, we took a bunch of equipment up to my co-producer, Jack Petrozelli's house up in the Pocono mountains, which is very secluded and very quiet. And, you know, we certainly could have worked in any number of studios here in New York city, but I wanted to get everybody away so that sort of the daily, you know, uh, 
responsibilities that we all have and, you know, stuff with our kids and our houses and whatever. So we could kind of forget about that and just create this, this little mini world where it was just about making the music and just about recording the album. Um, so, and, and we did, uh, you know, we, we didn't have a ton of time, you know, we didn't have weeks and weeks and weeks to do it, but we had enough time where we could, uh, you know, go and do several takes of a song and then go back over it and, and fix things that, that we didn't like and, and uh, overdub solos, for example, or, you know, I went back in and, and redid the vocals on several of the songs. So, so it was more like a modern process where, you know, you start out with everyone playing in the same room and everybody even living in the same house for several days. And then you go back in and you, you know, you pour over a little bit and you, and you perfect the things that, uh, that you feel need some extra attention. That's interesting. Now I, I have to ask you about something you, you said earlier, you recorded these in the Pocono mountains. Is that what you said? That's right. Yeah. Uh, Pennsylvania. That's right. Wow, I I spent uh, the first twenty summers of my life going to the Poconos in a cabin with my family. That was our vacation mm. spot. That's uh, <laughs> that's amazing. What a small world. Um, you know, you yeah, only, yeah, geez. and it's and it's very quiet and it's yeah. very rural and it's really peaceful. And we were right on the right next to a lake, and there was just yeah. something, uh, you know, just something beautiful about making music in that lovely spot. That's uh, that's amazing. That is amazing to me. Um, now, on, mm. on on the record, it said you also cover one of my all time favorite Dylan songs, "You Ain't Going Nowhere," and you know most people that know Bob Dylan in a sort of macro sense, they consider him and his music, you know, so serious. You know, it's times are changing and blown in the mm-hmm. wind and all this, but. You Ain't Going Nowhere is, to me, extraordinarily joyous. It's even goofy uh, in a lot of ways. Like, what about mm-hmm. this song appealed to you? Well, you know, I I think that, you know, it certainly Dylan has that reputation of being, you know, a political songwriter and as uh, his lyrics being, uh, you know, sometimes very dense and very poetic. But, yeah, he definitely has a sense of humor. And this song in, in particular kind of sounds like, you know, he was sitting around with the guys in the band up at Big Pink and right. they just sort of tossing stuff off and trying to make each other laugh. And, you know, on the one hand, you could, this isn't, you know, a particularly great, you know, Dylan tune and, and why choose it. But this is a song that I know has, you know, maybe the lyrics on paper don't seem hugely impressive, but I've heard this song performed, you know, at like a, a in the parking lot of a bluegrass festival and backstage at a show in Japan and we were down in Australia and there was a guy in front of the venue with his guitar case open and playing this song for change um you know it's it's one of these songs that just has something sort of solid and sturdy about it and you know you can pass it around from uh, from hand to hand and and you can share it with your friends and it's got the sing along chorus and you know, it's, it just kind of fulfills one of those very basic requirements that a song can have, which is, can you share this with people? Can people sing along with this? And mm. is this something that you can, uh, that you can invite people into and, and have them participate in? And, and I feel like, you know, because of course he comes from the folk music tradition, you know, he still kind of had that in his, in his back pocket of being able to create something that can be shared in this way. And I think that's important too. And I think it's also just a moment on the record. You know, the record has some very heavy moments, but I like this sort of, as you say, sort of joyful and inclusive moment on the record too. And I think that 
is something that energetically is is important to have. Yeah, it's funny. You, you, again, you mentioned that about the sort of in, inclusionary nature of it, because there's a there's a great cover of the song by um, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Roseanne Cash, and Sean Colvin. They did it together, and uh, mm. they did it at the mm-hmm. Bob Dylan 30th anniversary concert of 1992. And it's it's my favorite Dylan cover that anyone's ever done because it has mm-hmm. that for for a song that seems lyrically so slight. It has this sort of anthemic feel to it of the joy and so i really think you get to it on the on the on the album i remember when i when i bought the record and i saw that that was one of the songs i thought oh that's terrific because i'm always up for hearing other versions of this song mm-hmm. i'll have to good. check out the the roseanne mary chapin and uh, and sean version i, I don't know that so yeah, i'll have to dig that can, up i yeah, love all three of those women yeah you hear it on youtube it's it's, it's really uh, really fantastic so now conversely like were there any songs in dylan's canon that you wanted to attempt and you just feel like you couldn't find a way into it like you were just mm-hmm. you wanted to and you're mm-hmm. like no, this isn't gonna work yeah well you know there there were a couple of tunes i mean of course we learned and worked up far more songs than we had space for on the record uh and some of the ones that that were really wonderful live you know we took them into the studio and for whatever reason we just you know we just couldn't get a good take on them on that particular day um, so those kind of go in the back pocket and end up being sort of, you know, songs that you play for your live audiences when they come to see the show. And, you know, if we end up doing, uh, you know, volume two of this, maybe we'll bring those out. Um, I, I think probably the one that I was maybe most disappointed to not really get something exciting for, uh, was serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. Yeah. Um, because we, we worked up this really cool arrangement and live, it was just slaying and everybody was loving it. And then we took it into the studio and it just, you know, for whatever reason, we just couldn't capture that same, you know, excitement and that that same energy for it. So, uh, it just, it was, that was one of the ones that got away. Um, and you know, we tried doing, um, we tried doing this song, I'll remember you, uh, I, I know it from. Yeah, it's from Empire Burlesque. I actually know it from the the Masked and Anonymous movie, right? Um, because he does Dylan and his band do just a devastating version of it, um, just very sort of uh, you know acoustic, and all the musicians are sitting very close together, and uh, you know the the drummer is is just you know, kind of playing on a box on its side, <laughs> and you know it's, it's super intimate um, and very very beautiful. And, you know, we, we did it a few times and, and, uh, you know, it, it was, it was nice. It was lovely, but it, it just didn't have that kind of, uh, you know, devastating energy that the Dylan song did. So, um, again, it, it's something that we might end up, you know, pulling out at some other time and, and trying again. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't feel like that was special enough to, to include on the record. And, you know, there, there were a few others that, you know, that we could talk about, but those to me were the, the ones that really, uh, you know, they got away and I, I was disappointed about that. Hmm. But, you know, it, there's, that's the thing about, that's the great thing about working with Dylan's material is, you know, you've got another 150 songs that you, you know, which are amazing, <laughs> you know, apex, fantastic songs, which you can then try if the first 50, you know, don't work. So you're, you're not going to run out of options. <laughs> When you're when you're uh, covering one of his songs, like I mean, you know, obviously we can none of us can speak to where his mind was at any given point when he was writing any song, and it, you just because one song mm-hmm. seems heavier than another doesn't mean that 
the lighter one is less personal than than some others. But like I'm thinking about like you open the record with the Tangled Up in Blue cover, which is which is terrific. And that's mm-hmm. I mean, he himself has talked about that. That's that song is, per, you know, ripped from his life is do you mm-hmm. when, when you're trying to cover it it's like do you try and kind of put yourself almost like a in like a method actor kind of way put yourself in that role of of the singer or mm-hmm. do you approach it differently i mean do you do you need to do that to be able to you feel like sing it effectively mm-hmm. um i mean i guess the short answer is is yes uh, you know when you're looking at any song to you know to perform even if it's a song of your own you are kind of, um, you know, taking on this role of, you know, the the voice of the person singing and the character. Um, and, you know, that's actually been one of the really amazing things about this problem, this record is, you know, I kind of feel like what an actor must feel like when they're doing Shakespeare, because, you know, the, the roles are so juicy in these songs, you know, right. and the, the language is so, is so wonderful. And, and, you know, it's, the material is so rich and there's so much there. Um, so it's, it's very satisfying in that way. It's like, these are sort of lifetime, you know, roles that, you know, to take on in that way. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like in order to really inhabit the song fully, you kind of have to go there. Um, you know, of course, you know, you're standing on a stage and it's all, you know, everybody sort of knows that it, this isn't your, your own true confession of your life story. But in order to really let the song live through you as fully as possible in that moment, you kind of have to go all in and, and pretend that, that this is you and this is about you and this is you speaking these words about your life. And, you know, part of that can be that some of these songs remind me of people in my life, remind me of situations that I've been in, remind me of, of a, something that I have struggled with or am still struggling with. So it's not that much of a, a reach uh, in some of them. And then other times it's just, wow, this is really beautiful. And I'm not even sure why I have this emotional connection to it, but I do. So I'm going to let the song lead me in that way. And I don't have to fill in a backstory or connect it to some particular incident in my life the song is kind of carrying me through. Right, right. And now on the opposite end of that spectrum, uh, you cover um, the mighty Quinn, Quinn the Eskimo. And um, first of all, that's mm-hmm. a song, that's a song most people probably don't even know is a Bob Dylan song because the the more famous version mm-hmm. is the one by Manfred Mann. Now I have, yeah, I, Manfred I, I, Mann, I, uh-huh. yeah, I've been listening to that song for, you know, 40 years. I can't make high, you know, heads or tails of it. Uh, can, do you have any inkling <laughs> as to what the hell that song's about? Well, you know, I I feel like I know what it's about, you know, in a poetic sense. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that uh, that we did with the song, uh, my co-producer Jack Petrozelli, he he, you know, had been listening to a bunch of gospel music, and and um, in particular this uh, great song "Oh Happy Day" by the Edwin Hawkins Singers, this great record. Um, and he felt like there was a, an opportunity to take. Um, to sort of take that gospel lens and look at Quinn through it, because even the Manfred Mann version of it has a little bit of that energy to it. Um, and the chorus, of course, is this you know, sort, of, sort of cool, like, uh, you know, anthemic thing, which, you know, it, it, to give it a gospel reading it sort of amps up that aspect of it. And so we experimented with that, you know, when we were working on the tune, and there was just something about, 
even just changing a couple of chords slightly and, and, you know, working with the arrangement and pushing it towards that gospel space that allowed me to kind of feel like the song was making more sense, not in a direct way of like, oh, I know what each one of these lyrics means now, but more in like a poetic sense of, um, you know, this, this mighty Quinn character could be a lot of different things or people or events. And, and yet it's something that everyone is sort of anticipating with, <laughs> with great joy and, and, uh, you know, whoever this Quinn guy is, you know, we're really excited that he's coming and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, it doesn't make me know specifically more about this Quinn character, but it does make the song feel like it makes more sense in that poetic way to push it towards this gospel place. If, if that's a real answer to your question. No, that makes sense. I, I, you know, I appreciate that. I think I'll probably listen to the song a little differently from that perspective. Cause it's, I mean, I enjoy mm-hmm. it. I really do enjoy it, but yeah, the, the, the lines of it ain't my cup of meats. And I'm just like, what the hell is he talking about? This is sort of baffling. <laughs> now, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, in the past, Bob himself, or I should say Dylan himself has often recorded all cover albums as a way to sort of like, I think he used the phrase clear the decks before embarking on like a new mm-hmm. path as a songwriter. He did that with the, um, these acoustic folk records he did in the nineties. And now of course he's doing this. Yeah. This world gone this, wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. World gone wrong. And good as they've been to you. And now of course he's doing these, these Sinatra records as, as a songwriter yourself, is that something you can relate to? Do you feel like you have to get like in a different headspace to maybe to go on and write your own songs again? Well, I think it's, you know, definitely, uh, you know, part of the process. Um, And, you know, for me, like, I definitely go back and listen to music that that inspires me. And, you know, it's kind of like priming the pump in a way, Um, you know, listening to music or reading poetry or going to see art. it, It keeps your brain sort of in that territory where, you know, ideas will come up and where, um, you know, something that you overhear in the street will suddenly seem like the, the first line of a song or, uh, you know, something, you know, a situation that you've been pondering and haven't been able to figure out, uh, you know, suddenly you'll see a way that it can make sense or, or see a way that it can become a story. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, I don't know, I guess that when people talk about, um, you know, computer programming, there's that phrase garbage in, garbage out. You know, I think it's the same for creating. If you, if you, you know, sit around and watch a bunch of, you know, HGTV or something, you're not necessarily going to be in the frame of mind to write uh, song lyrics. But if you listen to a lot of great music and you read poetry or you go to see plays or whatever, your brain is going to be sort of set in, in that world and you're going to be able to uh, work more effectively, I think. Now, in terms of just your your love of the, the man's canon, I mean, do you have a particular favorite Dylan song? Is there a way to boil it down into one or two songs? Do you have a particular favorite album? Mm, I mean, I have some favorite albums. I can't really say that, you know, there's a favorite song and, and I, you, I don't think you can distill, you know, a, a body of work like his down to, Oh, here's one favorite. And at least I can't. Um, but I do have some favorite albums. Uh, oh, mercy is a favorite album of mine. And uh, you know, just, I'm not sure whether it's a favorite because of uh, the fact that um, it seemed to come at, 
you know, at a time when a lot of people had written him off. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the 80s, he put out, you know, sort of record after record, which um, which got less and less attention with each one. And people seemed to be more and more, uh, you know, sort of confused about, like, what's going on with him. And, and some people thought he was just done. And then to come up with a record like Oh Mercy was just so beautiful and, um, you know, and it kind of in a way allowed him to sort of plant his flag anew in this like American roots music world, um, which he, you know, I guess people had thought he had abandoned that for rock and roll or something. And, and, you know, he really, you know, he hadn't because roots music is rock and roll and, you know, it's all part of the same, uh, you know, ocean, if you will. So I I just feel like in, in terms of that, it, it was sort of a justification um, and a renewal for him. And also I just love so many of the songs, you know I mean? Shooting star. What a great song, you know, what a beautiful song, Um, you know, uh, everything is broken and political world. And, you know, it's it's just such a, such a great record. So that's one of my favorites. Um, I think, uh, you know, blood on the tracks. Again, that's a, that's a favorite record of mine. And I think there's, um, you know, a, a lot of evidence in the songs that he was writing this at a time when he was completely emotionally raw and vulnerable. And of course, you know, people who know the biographical details of his world, um, you know, point to his his divorce from Sarah Dillon and all of that. And, you know, I think it's, you know, even if you didn't know any of that stuff, you could listen to those songs and realize that this is a person who is, you know, in a lot of pain and and experiencing a lot of tenderness and able to describe it in uh in a way that is just so uh so affecting and so perfect and so you know finely detailed and just you know just amazing so that's that's a favorite of mine um i i love the the um love and theft album too you know mm-hmm. to uh which is which i feel like has this, this kind of sort of rollicking humorous um, kind of, you know, character to it. And, you know, it, it's, it's not a, a record that Dylan could have written as a young man, you know, and, and it's just so, I just so appreciate um, the perspective of, of this, you know, artist uh, at, at that point in his career, uh, you know, having been through just, you know, everything that anybody can possibly live through as an artist. And, you know, you look at somebody like him and, and, it, it's just, it's so monumental what he's achieved. And then to sort of be standing at the far end of that and to drop a record that is still sort of playful mm-hmm. um, and funny yeah. and knowing, uh, I just, I just appreciate it so much. Um, so, you know, those are a few favorites and, and, you know, I, I could sit down and, and go through my collection and, and <laughs> probably change my mind next right, week about right. what my favorites are, but, you know, but I can, but I, I can vouch for those right now. I always assumed that Oh Mercy was a favorite because I remembered uh, listening to your first record and you cover Man on the Long Man in mm-hmm. Long Black Coat. And I, you know, this was in 95 yeah. and, and Oh Mercy was only a couple of years old at that point. And, you know, in the mid 90s, people mm-hmm. really didn't cover new Dylan songs for the most part. They covered 60s and 70s. And that that cover jumped out at me. I was like, wow, she, she you know, she's covering something that mm-hmm. just came out a couple of years ago. So I always figured that would had to be one of your favorites. Yeah, it is. It really is. 
uh, and so uh, finally, I, you've been asked about this before, and I, I hate to sort of make you answer the same questions over and over because I know that probably gets very tedious. But uh, but I, I have to ask, uh, what, <laughs> what was it like to to be in the recording studio and to do duet with him on on Chimes of Freedom? Yeah. Um, well, it was uh, it was cool. You know, I um, I very distinctly remember. Um, you know, I, I got to the studio a little bit early. And I know some of the guys in his band. And so I was kind of sitting and chatting with them. And um, I had my back to the door. Um, but I sensed immediately when Dylan came into the room because it was <laughs> it was like the weather changed instantly <laughs> inside the room. And and I think partly that is just because he as a as a person, he does have like a personal charisma and a magnetism. And he's you know, he's a, a very magnetic human being um and i think also part of it was that even though it wasn't overt everyone in that room very subtly shifted their focus from whatever else they had been doing and shifted it onto him and you know people were sort of seemed to be gauging you know what his mood was and what his direction was going to be and and when it first happened i i was like wow that's that's really weird um and yet as the session went on um, and Dylan, you know, as he was working with the song, he changed his mind about it very quickly. And, you know, we would try a take and do it one way and then he would change his mind and he would want to do it another way. And then he would change his mind again and want to do it another way. And <laughs> I, I realized that if people didn't focus very intently on, on him and on his ideas and th then they were going to get left behind. And, um, so that's what I had to do as well. I had to be very focused and pay close attention to uh, to what he was saying. And it wasn't like he was, you know, saying it really loud or even clearly. And you just you kind of have to uh, sort of in, use your instincts and, and uh, you know, to follow what he's talking about sometimes. Um, and also I was, you know, using the same microphone that he was using. So wow. our faces were literally, you know, inches apart. Um, and I had to try to match his phrasing because we didn't rehearse how we were going to do it before we got up on the, the mics. He just, he just went. So you know, I knew I, I had learned the lyrics of the song and I knew it well enough so that I didn't have to look at a piece of paper. So I had to study his lips as he was singing so that I could match his phrasing. And I had to concentrate really, really fully um, when I was doing that. So in, in one sense, it was kind of good because I didn't have any space or energy left to be nervous about it. I was just, I had to be so focused on the task at hand that I couldn't, you know, give any time to the little voice in my head that would have been saying, Oh my God, you're singing with Bob Dylan. Oh my God, you know, I'm on the same mic with him. Oh my God, don't mess up. You know, I, there, there was no room in my, in my head for that. So I, I just sort of had to focus and do it. And then it was all over very quickly because he just wanted to do a few takes and then be done. <laughs> that's extraordinary uh i mean you know i would imagine following him on any song would be tough enough especially with chimes of freedom which is incredibly dense lyrically it's kind of verbose yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, well uh thank you very much uh joan i really appreciate you doing this i thought the record was just terrific and i'm really happy that well, thank you uh, people are going to get a chance to you know the people that listen to my show i mean i'm sure they all already know about it but 
but I, just the chance to, to talk to you and, and be able to tell you directly how much I enjoyed the, the album and how much I've enjoyed your music all over these years. Uh, and so I really appreciate you doing this. So thank you. Well, you're so, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Gypsy gal, the hands of Harlem cannot hold you to its heat. Your temperature's too hot for taming. Your flaming feet burn up the street. I am homeless. Come and take me. 